Welcome to the Post-Christian Podcast. Our goal is to reframe, simplify, and focus on our mission to make disciples in a post-Christian culture. We discuss reaching new people and raising up leaders while removing the barriers of churchianity. I'm Eric Bryant, one of the executive pastors at Gateway Church in Austin, author of Not Like Me, and resource provider at ericbryant.org. In this episode, I interview Jay Kim, author of the book, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. Well, I'm excited to have with me today, Jay Kim. Jay, welcome. Glad you're here. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Happy to be on. Well, I'd love to give folks who are listening a chance to get to know you a little bit. I've met you through a mutual friend, uh, Dan Kimball. Uh, tell me tell me about your life pre-vintage faith and how you even ended up working with Dan. Yeah, uh, Dan Kimball, obviously a dear, dear friend, mutual friend of ours. I, um, I, I grew up in the Silicon Valley. I've been here basically my entire life and uh, um, dropped out of uh, the state university when I was uh, like 21 and, and enrolled in Bible college. That's a whole long story, but was really passionate about uh, youth ministry. So I spent eight years serving high school, and middle school students and in the midst of that, um, got into college ministry and young know, adult ministry, and then spent some time uh, helping plant a church, and then went to the polar opposite end of the spectrum as a teaching pastor at a large multi-site church here uh, in the Silicon Valley. And right in the middle of that whole journey, Dan Kimball and I met, and uh, we started working together. I started helping him with uh, something that he started um, called the Regeneration Project. Mm-hmm. So we've been working on that together. And then for the last four years, uh, long story short, we um, we decided to serve alongside each other at the same church, at Ministries Church. Great. So that's been, uh, yeah, a blast. I love it. Well, I still, one of my favorite um, lattes I've ever had was at the Abbey there oh, uh, yeah. at Vintage Faith. And uh, how do you like living in Santa Cruz? Did you relocate to live there? No, I still live in Silicon Valley, which is about uh, it's about a thirty minute drive into Vintage Faith. So I, I have my feet in both worlds. It's kind of fascinating and interesting. And uh, yeah, we've got some family stuff going on here in the Silicon Valley that sort of keeps us here with our two young kids and help we've got with our parents, my wife and I, both of our parents. And um, so yeah, we're just doing the commute deal, but. Uh, yeah, it's been fun to be in Santa Cruz serving and challenging. It's a challenging mm-hmm. place. Yeah. Um, incredibly post-Christian, really, really eclectic. and mm-hmm. uh, But, you know, that's the fun of it. So Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, what have you found that Vintage Faith does well? You know, not just uh, you and Dan, but even the people in your church as they're reaching out, trying to connect people to faith. What, what do you see working there? What's helping people? Yeah, well, you know, Santa Cruz is interesting. Um, where we are on the west side of Santa Cruz, we're about a mile and a half down the road from the big state university, UC Santa Cruz. And so the west side of Santa Cruz is actually a very it's highly educated in uh, people sort of like um, asking tough questions. There's a lot of cynicism for sure. So, uh, for us, because of that, and for lots of reasons, but, um, you know, an emphasis on theology and 
digging deep into the scriptures and asking hard questions about the story of God and what he might be up to in the world. Um, those, a, a sort of thoughtful Christianity has been really important for us and has been effective for us. So uh, that's been a big part of it. You know, like, like you mentioned, we have a coffee shop uh, at our church called the Abbey. It's open seven days a week. It's open during our Sunday worship gatherings. And um, so it's full of people seven days a week who uh, could care less about Jesus and about faith and, and many who are actually quite antagonistic toward Christianity and yet they like our coffee. Um, and, and so a thoughtful Christianity has, has really been helpful uh, because conversations happen all the time. I mean, um, I'm in conversations with, with people who are not Christian uh, in our coffee shop on a fairly regular basis and they have really tough questions, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's that's sort of one leaning we have as a church community that we found incredibly helpful uh, yeah. as we try to missionally reach a very post-Christian and intellectual place like the west side of Santa Cruz. I love it. And, and I think that part of you know my experience even being at Vintage Faith uh, a time or two was seeing how the staff, not just of the church, but the coffee shop uh, does interact and doesn't mind getting into those conversations it's not that people are unwilling to talk about spiritual things. It's actually more like what you described. They love to talk about it and they've come to pretty clear convictions on it. How has actually pointing them towards the scriptures and how have those conversations become fruitful? How have you seen those conversations work? Cause we don't want to get into a, you know, a debate every time you see someone. So tell me how you help people make that turn. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, so much of it has to do with focusing on our posture before we focus on our position. And what I mean by that is our, uh, we want to make sure that no matter what the differences may be between us and the per person we're trying to, um, you know, reach and love and serve and share the gospel with, the, the, no, the first thing we're thinking about is is, is our posture toward them one of kindness and generosity and openness and love? Uh, because if we can have that posture, then no matter what our theological position, the posture has a way of, um, and I've experienced this firsthand many times, our posture has a way of either disarming um, or uh, really pushing away uh, a person who who might be willing or even not willing to have mm -hmm. a, a meaningful conversation with you about it. So we tell our staff that all the time. And, and like you said, you know, when you come into our coffee shop, our baristas there, they're told all the time in, in, in monthly training meetings, um, you know, your posture toward the customer, no matter who they are, where they're coming from, whatever they're dealing with, whatever their position on whatever thing, our posture is the primary means by which we are going to uh, express the love of Christ to them. And that hopefully we hope and pray opens the door to having conversations about our position on whatever, you know, various mm -hmm. things, but the posture is the key. So, you know, again, posture of kindness, generosity, love um, is, is so crucial. And I, I've just found in my own life, uh, in my interactions with folks at our church uh, who come to the Abbey, people who don't know Jesus, 
You know, even if we end the conversation in disagreement about a particular idea or position, if the posture is again one of love and kindness and generosity, they almost always leave with a smile on their face, mm. you know, and uh, a renewed um, sense of what a follower of Jesus actually is like, you know, a deconstructing of the caricatures they have and uh, a renewed sense of, oh man, you know, Christians are actually kind and loving. So. Well, and I love that because I do think it's very much wrapped up in not just you know, what you know, but, but how you treat someone, what are some of the questions that you do find are being asked a lot? What, what are some of the kind of last issues that people might have before moving towards an open-mindedness? Have you found some similarities between people and their journeys? Yeah, for us in Santa Cruz, and this may be specific to us, but I think it's it's common to a lot of post-Christian places like Santa Cruz, uh, you know, I, I would just say candidly, the number one question we get is the question of sexuality. People are asking mm-hmm. us that all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and the caricature they have about our church and about Christians as a whole when they approach us with the question is that if we hold a particular view or position on human sexuality or on gender, uh, that we must categorically, it must categorically mean that we're bigots and that we hate anybody who doesn't hold our view. So uh, that's a conversation that happens all the time. And it is actually quite fruitful. Again, going back to my earlier point, when they see um, that our posture is a particular way, even if we have differences of opinion on our position on the matter, uh, people typically walk away with uh, a sense of, uh, again, a deconstruction of the caricature they had. They they yeah. at least walk away with the, with the understanding, oh, they're not like bigots. They don't hate people. They're actually driven by love. And and um, so that's a that's a really common one. And you know, another one we get all the time is uh, pluralism. You know, like why is it why is there an ex- exclusivity to the Christian God, why do you say that Jesus is the only way? Don't all paths lead to the one true God? And so that's a conversation that happens a lot as well. Um, and that might be because we live in a in a unique place like Santa Cruz. We serve in a unique place like Santa Cruz where um, everyone hates religion but loves spirituality. <laughs> like mm-hmm. It's yeah. a fascinating dichotomy. So yeah, uh, I would assume you know Austin is similar in, in yeah. those ways, but. For sure. Yeah, those are the conversations that happen a lot. Well, and how do you help someone when that that pluralism question, especially? I loved how you, you know, reframed moving past the caricature, you know, of of people of faith, like you might see on the news. Or, to be honest, and I know you'd agree with this too, I, there are a lot of believers that have been very outspoken against, and probably are bigoted against, you know, the LGBTQ community. But how do you help someone with the pluralism? Uh, How do you help them keep or even start pursuing Jesus in the midst of all their questions about what about all these other faiths? Yeah, well, I think you nailed it right there, Eric. It's we, we try to bring it back to Jesus. So rather than debate philosophy, you know, for us, our approach is to paint as compelling of a picture as possible of this ancient, you know, first century Jewish rabbi named Jesus who claimed to be the son of God um, and then went to the cross and died. And then the hinge point, you know, for the conversation always is going to be, did he actually 
come back to life? Is resurrection real? Because if it isn't, then obviously it's all a hoax. But if it is, then at, at the very moment, it demands our attention if a man died and rose rose again. So mm. uh, w- without getting into all the you know sort of classic apologetics of the resurrection, it, in some form or fashion, it always ends up coming back to that place where, mm. um, you know, who is Jesus? And uh, certainly whether you believe he's God or not, it's undeniable that he is uh, one of, if not the central figure in human history. I mean, mm. our, yeah. you know, the way we date our calendar hinges upon his life, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we, we just try to tell a compel- paint a compelling picture, a vision of who Jesus is and why, again, why we are so compelled by his story. Um, and then rather than trying to convince or coerce someone, we just try to share honestly about why we are so incredibly compelled by him. And hopefully that um, opens hearts and minds. I love it. Part of what was fun with Dan uh, back when I was at Mosaic with, with Irwin, we created this uh, group called the Origins Project, and we were really intentional about communicating what followers of Jesus are for, because we were so known for what we were against, and and we made it clear that we're for Jesus, we're for people, and we're for innovation. And it was a a fun season doing the Origins Project together. And I think regeneration uh, was kind of uh, what came next for him. And it's been fun to see what you guys are doing. Uh, That's right with that ministry and and that effort. Let me ask you about your book. You have a book that's about to come out. Uh, I just got a copy of it. I'm excited to start reading yeah. it. Uh, and it's got a great title and uh, maybe even an ironic title in light of what's happening in our world uh, <laughs> in the middle of this pandemic where when we're recording this. Tell us about the book. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, the book is called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. And yes, the irony is not lost on me that I am releasing a book uh, suggesting that the church needs to continue gathering in embodied ways at a time when that's actually not the right thing to do. So, um, but uh, yeah, the book essentially is, is basically an exploration of the intersection between our ecclesiology, you know, what we believe the church to be and how we can move forward into the future as the church and um, the digital age and all of the technologies and, uh, and advancements that the digital age offers us. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to do a, a fairly simple, but to me, a really important thing which is to ask church leaders in particular and followers of Jesus in general to consider uh, more carefully and thoughtfully the ways in which our sort of digital leanings and digital tendencies, our uh, immersion into digital technologies at the church level, at the ecclesiological level, may be affecting and actually in some ways harming when we're not careful and thoughtful, harming um, our understanding and our experience of what it means to be the church together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously there's, we're in a strange time where we have to be digital. Our church is digital now as all churches, I think in um, at least in the Western world and throughout the world now, 
um, are. Uh, so it's fascinating, and I'm wrestling with that quite a bit and thinking about it. But there you go. That's the book. Yeah. Well, and I, to me, honestly, I feel like the message is going to be even more important. Uh, honestly, what we're experiencing now, you know, certainly – uh, in Austin, we've been in this shelter in place for about a week. Uh, you know, it sounds like it's going to last at least a month. Uh, it could go longer, you know, and even what you're seeing in Hong Kong, uh, they kind of started letting people back out, uh, so to speak. And uh, now it sounds like they're going back into more of a shelter in place again as the viruses uh, continue to spread. So, Let's, I want to at some point talk about what you see happening after all of this, because there will be a new normal, even post-pandemic. Uh, but I do wonder, you know, right now, I saw the article you wrote, uh, even about this, you know, in spite of what we're going through, here's why this is still important. Maybe share some of the points from that article, because I thought that was really helpful, uh, talking about, you know, this is temporary, but but why it's so important. Like, after this, there may be a resurgence of attendance at events. You know, we're going to want to be out with people. We want to hug uh, after being so isolated. T tell me some of your thoughts in the middle of this pandemic of how can the church be more analog, even though we're, we're having to be digital? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the opportunity before us is um, it's becoming clearer and clearer by the day, actually, which to me is very hopeful in the midst of this really um, strange, crazy and fearful time. Mm -hmm. There is there is a sort of hopefulness in that every single day. I mean, just think about this. We, we actually have right now at our disposal more more ability and capability, more tools to stay, and I'm using air quotes here, but to stay connected mm -hmm. uh, while physically apart than we've ever had in the rest of human history combined. Mm -hmm. You know, you, if you can imagine, you know, if if COVID nineteen had happened 25 years ago, what would we, what would we do? I mean, yeah. we'd be on the phone calling each other certainly, but beyond that, you know, it and it'd be tough. It'd be really tough. But now every day I'm on a zoom call with several people. Meetings are no problem. It's actually really convenient in some ways, as long as my Wi-Fi is working. Okay. It's really convenient. You know, I just log on and, um, I don't have to drive anywhere. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of the fact that we have more tools at our disposal than ever before to make this work, there is still a rising angst, anxiety, a sort of fatigue with this um, really disembodied disruption. Mm -hmm. And I think the hope there is that, uh, and you said it, Eric, um, the hope there is that while we are in this time, as leaders especially, but all of us, if we can really begin to remind one another and help people, especially followers of Jesus, lean into the angst and the, the fatigue we feel at our physical disconnection right now, it can raise the awareness, heighten the awareness that as embodied human beings, as physical material beings made in the image of God out of dirt and flesh, the stuff of earth, as Genesis 2 tells us, then when this is over, um, it, it, it will be a celebration. 
You know, it'll be a sort of like, oh man, we can finally come out um, from behind our digital walls and be physically embodied, incarnational is the theological word, you know, in the flesh with one another. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then we'll have a whole nother thing we'll have to do to make sure that that lasts and becomes something that becomes embedded in us as followers of Jesus. But for now, I'm hopeful that when this is over, this season will have heightened our awareness of our deep need for embodied presence with one another. There are several things we have to do, I think, as leaders to, to make that happen and, and ensure that happens, but that's the opportunity, I think. I think you're right. Absolutely. And why don't you just share just in the midst of like what you think it could look like in this new world? Uh, what what do leaders need to do to help people stay more connected and and all that comes with that more incarnational ministry? Yeah, well, I think absolutely we need to lean into digital right now because it is the right thing to do for the common good driven by our love for neighbor, right? This is, we are caring um, for uh, the most vulnerable amongst us, although now, you know, there are stories of, man, you know, coronavirus, this novel coronavirus might be more dangerous than we thought. So it's, it's certainly for the common good, we need to shelter in place and, and keep our physical distance. But in the midst of this, as it forces us into the digital space, I think for leaders in particular, we have to we have to communicate very clearly and consistently to our people that this is a temporary compromise rather than an ongoing convenience. Mm. That digital technologies are great supplemental tools. And I know a lot of churches have already had online presence. And I don't think that's bad. I think that's great. But the online presence has to be communicated as a supplemental tool. You know, when you're traveling and you're gone, this is a supplemental tool to keep you connected. And you can watch the sermon and, mm. and chat with folks, you know. Very similar to when I travel and, um, you know, I'm away from home. I love that my phone, I can FaceTime with my family, see my wife and kids. But because it's supplemental, that, that experience of FaceTiming at its finest, what it does is it primarily heightens my awareness of my longing and desire to get back home and hold my real kids in my real arms and give them real hugs. And um, I think that's what we need to do in this season. And even in digital spaces, I think we need to try our best to invite participation rather than simply informing and presenting content. And um, people are already trying to do that in some creative ways. And I'm encouraged by that, but you know, in unique ways to our unique communities, we need to be thinking I think through that lens, how do we use digital mediums to invite participation rather than simply informing and presenting content? Um, and, and, you know, that's a challenge, but it's a challenge that, that I think is, is one that we need to take on uh, in order to lean people into analog experiences. That's great. Well, if someone wants to read more of uh, what you do, uh, certainly find the book. Uh, is there a website you would point them towards? Yeah, uh, just my website, jkimthinks.com, really simple. Um, and uh, yeah, the book stuff is on there as well as uh, the stuff I work on with Dan Kimball, the Regeneration Project and info about our church. So um, everything's there. And then the book itself, you know, you can find it wherever they sell books. So. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you, Jay. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, just keep up your great work there on the West Coast. 
Yeah, appreciate it, Eric. Appreciate the work you're doing in Austin as well. So thanks for the time. Thanks for joining us on the Post-Christian Podcast. More resources available at ericbryant.org.